Incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is seh. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beam me up. Resistance is futile. They're long and prosperous. and welcome to Season 5 of the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise and this documentary in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Actress, teacher, world traveler, and one hell of a freestyle rapper. Shaping young minds in Greenville, South Carolina. It's Caroline Davis! Yay! Caroline! (laughs) Hi! Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for carving out the time. I, you know, I've talked with a lot of folks who are working in different creative endeavors, but your schedule is more packed than most. You you stay busy. It's true. It's true. I get busy and then I stay busy. Um, but yeah, <laughs> this was, podcasts are actually one of the few kind of creative projects that aren't regularly on my repertoire. So I appreciate the opportunity to expand my um professional resume yes, uh, of with a podcast feature. This is so exciting. <laughs> we, we are, we are happy to make your dreams come true. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and uh, address the uh, similarity in our names. You are actually my niece. That's right. That's yeah. what they tell me. Yeah. You are the oldest daughter of my oldest brother. Which makes our in, our relationship really interesting, right? Because mm-hmm. you think that that means that I'm way younger than you, but you really have always felt more like an older brother to me because we're yeah. only how, I'm only how many years? eight years older than you. Eight yeah. years older. Yeah. Not by much. Yeah. Just, just a little bit. And to be fair, I may be older. You're way smarter, way more <laughs> mature, way more accomplished. Like you're... way more obnoxious. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, no, but, uh, you know, we, we were talking a little bit before we got rolling uh, that uh, you've been I was trying to think of the first the first time I saw you on stage. I think you were four, five. I, I bet I was five. five. Yeah, because I did the uh, I started at the Children's Theater in Greenville and that the first mm. show I did was in 1997. It was wow. Into the Woods and actually Into the Woods is not a kid's show. But they huh. uh, they needed kids in the cast to be able to like put it on at the children's theater. Right. So they invented a bunch of woodland fairies who would come out before the show and again at intermission and just hand potpourri to people. And they were like, it's kids. We can do it. It's kids. <laughs> so I was like a potpourri fairy, but they didn't teach us like, so we had to go into the audience and like give people potpourri sachets, right? Yeah. yeah. But I'm, I'm five. I have no social graces. So every night, like someone, some, some like older man would be like, oh, sweetheart, what are you doing for the play? And I'd be like, I have to talk to you now because you've talked to me. And they would have to like get a stage manager to drag me backstage because I didn't have the social mores at five to be like, sorry, sir, we're five to curtain. I need to go now. Like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know any better. So um, that's where both my theater career and my anxiety started, I think. Oh, nice. Yeah. There, there seems to be 
Uh, you know, and, you know, many A-listers and pros want to dispel that, you know, there's no social anxiety uh, for the performers. And I I really, I, I disagree. <laughs> I think there's, there's, I've always said it takes a special kind of damage to get in front of people and seek approval from strangers. And then uh, to be funny while you're doing it. Yeah. And then to brand. try to be funny. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, so after just your life in general, so that first performance at five, you didn't stop there. You all through high school into college and you uh, while you were in school, uh, I'm going to put this out there and, and toot your horn a little bit uh, was the first time I saw Shakespeare performed uh, live. And it was a very important performance for me because it because I watched I watched my niece disappear and this character take her place and it was so it was such a wonderful performance for me that um i've purposely steered clear of seeing a lot of shakespeare after that because i <laughs> don't want to taint that experience <laughs> you just gotta you gotta leave it once you have the one positive yeah. right now <laughs> yeah yep, that's it that's it i'm done i can push back from the table i'm good <laughs> oh man well thanks but, for say saying that that's really flattering and Shakespeare is one of those things that as a performer you I have a complicated relationship to Shakespeare you know on the one hand I'm like why do we keep doing him all the time um but on the other it's a big honor I think the first time that you get trusted with that kind of language and so um yeah to to have been able to do it and do it successfully for people who didn't know whether they were going to enjoy it or not is a really nice feeling yeah yeah it's it's such a it's very heavy it's very heavy and we didn't see a lot of Although we may have seen some Shakespearean takes on Star Trek in the original series, I don't think American audiences really got a healthy dose of Shakespearean acting until Jean-Luc Picard, you know, played by Sir Patrick Stewart. You know, uh, 1987, he hit the screen as as the captain of the Enterprise and was just kind of like, oh, this is different. And seeing him seeing his story play out his story which is still playing out as right. Jean-Luc Picard <laughs> right. um yeah it's it is first of all impressive mm -hmm. um that his that that character's had such longevity but when you look at the types of performances he turned in with training you can only get in at Royal Shakespeare you know right. like I I I think it's all just kind of glossed over by the fandom as a whole of just like oh Patrick Stewart's an amazing actor like the dude worked really hard to get that good um so you know your experience uh, you obviously through college and now I always tell people you're a theater professor that's not correct a am I it is correct it yeah. is correct oh you good are right. good <laughs> Yay, great. <laughs> you did a, you, you get an A from me. Um, <laughs> Yay. Yeah, one so the, one of the so, few I've ever gotten from a teacher. <laughs> I, I'm happy to be that for you. Um yeah, so I I did the so my background's in theater. I my undergrad was in just a, a, a bachelor of arts in theater and a minor in women's gender and sexuality studies, which I think actually relates pretty well to what we're talking about today too. Yeah. And then yeah. uh I did my masters in performance and pedagogy and now I'm kind of I work as a, a professor in theater, but I'm kind of more in the history theory crit route. And then I still do a lot of acting and directing and teach some acting as well. So like uh, for me, stuff like this is really cool because 
I think there's this false dichotomy or this false division between what we consider popular culture. And I think Star Trek fits into that pretty squarely. Right. And then mm. what we consider like what, what was conventionally and maybe out of fashion formerly called like high culture. Right. So mm. things like theater and opera, things that fit into like this other sort of like entertainment sphere. Yeah. And often those are put at odds against one another. Like you, mm. right. So if you're a serious actor, you wouldn't do something pop culture and vice versa. Right. And really some of the best performances that we see throughout 20th and, tw- and now into 21st century pop culture actually comes from really solid and very serious theater training, as you just mentioned. Right. Um, yeah. So a lot of the directing work that I do is taking like my my thesis project in when I was a graduate student was uh, to tell the story of this. It's a three part opera, like by the, by act three, everything is sung. But it's this weird post apocalyptic retelling of an episode of The Simpsons. Yes. Um, it's the Kate Fear episode of The Simpsons. And so, like, I'm really big on sort of blurring the lines between what we consider to what would we expect to see in the typical theatrical realm or the entertainment realm when we're thinking of things like high culture and then blending those with elements of pop culture because I think they most they they make each other better like they both enhance the other and we don't I think give that enough credit sometimes yeah I think you're absolutely right and I mean not to let the cat out of the bag too too soon but uh, you know before we started rolling we discussed briefly the connection between drama and comedy a lot of people like to think that they are two separate things, and there are certainly things that are exclusive to each of those. But, um, you know, some of the things that are happening, uh, you know, some of the biggest, hardest things you deal in, deal with in life at some point kind of make that crossover and become comical, mm-hmm. where it might not be to the person it's happening to, but, you know, the idea of a comedy of errors is a comedy to everybody it's not happening to. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and there's that, there's that give and take, there's that balance. And, you know, you look at some of the, some of the best performances and I'll just use them as an example, just because it's super easy. Robin Williams, who could turn in an amazing dramatic performances uh, left and right. But at the end of the day, he was a comedian with a brilliant comedic mind uh, that we may not see again for a long time. But uh, yeah, that that connection to make is is important, especially and that translates over from, you know, talking about film and television as well. Now, you've been mostly uh, mostly on stage. And uh, well, before we get to that, uh, one of the things I'm super jealous of you uh, because you did a monologue in the Globe Theater. I did. Way back when. And then again, uh, you know, I I phrased it that way so that, you, <laughs> so that you can tell the story, but it's it's super inspiring. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, just briefly your travels and what you did in terms of acting outside the country. Yeah. So that time was actually, uh, I was pretty, I was 17, I think at the time. And that was the first time I had the opportunity to travel abroad. And I spent about three and a half months and we mostly stayed focused in the United Kingdom, did seven mm. week residency in London, but then had the opportunity to travel like on the weekends to Paris and Brussels and Madrid and Rome and Venice. Like just saw a, a, a wild amount of stuff in a really short period of time. But I made this list before I left the country mm. and I, 
I edited it before I sent it to the students that I took on the same trip pretty recently because there were some things that I was like, they don't need to be doing that. Um, but it was this, <laughs> it was a bucket list of things that I wanted to try to get done while I was abroad because I didn't think I was ever going to go back. And mm. uh, one of the things was to perform on a st- perform on a stage. And then the longer that I was there, the more I was like, it needs to be at the Globe because I had a big Shakespeare thing at the time. And uh, so obviously no one was like, hey, 16 year old, 17 year old from South Carolina, do you want to get up and perform at the Globe? That was not happening for me. Um, So I made it happen for myself. So we saw, I think, uh, Henry, the one of the Henrys. Mm. And um, at intermission, I stood up in the stalls and just created my own stage in the stalls and did uh, Kate's final monologue from The Taming of the Shrew for all of these unwitting patrons around me who were like, who are you and why are you doing this? And I think they thought that it was like, something that the globe had put on that they were expecting other people in the audience to start popping up with Shakespeare monologues. And I finished and everyone who knew me clapped. And then everyone else looked around expectantly, like what's happening next. And I was like, that was it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was the beginning of an illustrious pop-up guerrilla theater career for me. Uh, No, but um, (laughs) so that was the first time. And I I actually, I've gotten to uh, perform at, like I performed at Prague Fringe Festival in 2016, which was a oh, really wow. cool experience. And that was an actual on a stage for humans that knew they were going to see me perform when they right, got right. there. <laughs> uh, so, so I've been fortunate to be able to do things like that. And now um, going abroad, getting to go abroad and, and taking other sco- young scholars on their first international experience, or even when I take them up to like New York City, you know, and get to show them what it means to be an artist in a bigger um, market than what they yeah. have in their hometowns is a really humbling and fulfilling yeah. portion just, of my career. Just showing, yeah. just showing them just how small of a fish they truly are. <laughs> and they, <laughs> Beating and their that, egos down, yeah. right? No, I'm kidding, <laughs> I'm to, kidding. Be, to be honest, like that experience is, is very valuable. Like I talk about uh, my first time doing standup, which uh, my very first time was a contest that I didn't realize I was in. And I ended up winning. I was like, oh, well, if this is stand-up, I've got it made in the shade. My second performance doing stand-up, I couldn't make people laugh if I held a gun to their head and told them to laugh. Like, it just did not work. And so to have that and and to add insult to injury, like things weren't working. So I I had five minutes. I left at probably 90 seconds because like stuff just wasn't working. I put the mic back. I was like, bye. And walked off stage. The host was not ready. So the host scrambled to get back up on stage and said, uh, you know, you've got more time. And I said, well, nothing's working. So bye. I'm saving said, myself. I'm saving you. You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they said, uh, was this your first time? I said, it might as well have been. And that made the room laugh. And I was like, Fuck every single one of you. <laughs> and I'll bleep, I'll bleep that out, but, like, uh, but it, you know, at the time, you know, for a very young performer, just getting started, it was, you know, it, that was a, that was a sharp drop after, yeah. you know, for second performance. Uh, but you know, that was a big wake up call of like, okay, here's the high, here's the low, enjoy the road. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not one of those things. Like I recently have discovered that I'm just not the kind of professor who can avoid going on ratemyprofessor.com to see what people are saying about me. And I've tried to quit, you know, so many times, but I always, oh, it's like Googling yourself and you can, you cannot do it. But then once you've done it once, like you can't stop, you have to keep knowing, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
and, uh, and it's like that, right? As a performer, you have this sort of public, like you, there's a, a degree of vulnerability to having a public persona that people get to evaluate without your knowledge or consent sometimes. And right. that comes with, yeah, incredible highs and incredibly uh, humbling moments too. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Cause, uh, you know, <laughs> I, oh, gosh, there's so many things I want to say. But yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, they, the old adage of like, hey, never read the comments. Ugh. But it, there's a part of you that's just, oh, I, I poured my, I poured my heart and soul into this. Did anybody like it other than just saying, hey, good show? Like, was there anybody that ha- can form a cohesive sentence about what they saw me do? <laughs> uh, the comments, yeah. every time, the comments. Oh, the comments, every time. Well, before we get too much further into our topic today, I, I want to ask you, um, because you uh, very bravely admitted that you're not a Star Trek fan. I did. <laughs> Is this how I get canceled, do you think? No, uh, to be honest, the, the Star Trek community is very open, very welcoming, very forgiving. Uh, so I think I think you're going to be safe. But, uh, you know, with this documentary, The Green Girl, uh, was this your first toe in the water, we'll say, with anything Star Trek? Like, if I had said Susan Oliver, would you have known who I was talking about? I would not have known who Susan Oliver was ahead of this at all. No, Um I did a lot of homework in order to to be here today, <laughs> uh, which was a nice role reversal. But no, yeah, uh, Star Trek. I had a dear roommate uh, of mine in graduate school was a big Star Trek fan. She and her dad used to watch it together. And so I retained some cultural things secondhand from her. Of course. And uh, and then I know of some of the like the big moments, the it, it's not actually, but what's often purported to be the first interracial kiss, right? The, the mm-hmm, Plato's, mm-hmm. I forget the name of the episode, but um yeah things like that things that just have come into like a broader cultural consciousness with star trek i definitely am familiar with oh gosh and the black mirror episode that was kind of a love letter to star trek have you seen that uh no but i think i've heard rumblings about it it's uh give me give me just the the soup and the nuts what's what's the breakdown there it 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 goes on as though it's in a star trek like esque television episode in the 60s or 70s but there's it's been several years since i've seen it but it has direct correlations to you know what it's about but it's contemporary but it's like we're somehow stuck back in the mid 20th century through interesting yeah um and i remember thinking that that was really interesting and in general sci-fi for me has been something that i was just always very late on the bandwagon about and i think I know in one of at least one of your earlier episodes, you've talked about how gatekeeping is not a cool thing. And right, right. Yeah. And I think that my lack of knowledge with regard to some sci-fi genres in particular have to do Mm. with that, actually. Um, Oh, really? As a as a as a girl, like I've recently reclaimed my video gamer identity, like just because I don't like first person shooter games does not mean I'm not a gamer. Right. Exactly. And. And I think I'm I'm starting to do the same thing with sci-fi, but it, just for so long, it was not something that I felt like I could be a fan of and that would be okay. Right. Um, so yes, I knew, but I will say that watching this, uh, learning about Susan Oliver and kind of um, gleaning some more through the documentary has reignited my interest in, it's such a big undertaking because there's so, it's a whole world to explore, yeah. right? Yeah, I, we're, um, we're coming up on, we're coming up on 55 years of Star Trek. Yeah. It's, so where do you even, well, I guess 
chronologically if you're this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you subject yourself to Star Trek Enterprise and then work your way accordingly. But yeah, it's uh yeah, I, I wanted I wanted to make a show that was kind of a safe space for anybody to, hey, I've heard about this thing. Uh, I'm kind of interested in it. I want to know more about it. Uh, so, it, but also for like hardcore nerds of like, oh yeah, Star Trek, every episode since I was little. Okay. You know, here's new perspective with, with people who have varied opinions. So that, yeah, that's this, this show in a nutshell. So you weren't super familiar with Star Trek and Susan Oliver, specifically the subject of the documentary uh, that we're going to talk about. Um, but, you know, uh, she had such an amazing life and career and made such interesting connections and choices. A lot of them people might uh, balk at and, you know, uh, give a sideways glance to. But uh, to be honest, she, I, th I think more than anything, she lived her life right. and didn't didn't bend to anybody. As, as much as much as she as much as she possibly could but yeah it was it was really fascinating so uh before we dive too much deeper because I I want to talk with you about so many more things but a lot of those things actually parallel the the film yeah. uh so let's get to this week's recap brought to you in part by our patreon supporters Rev J Jerry Antimano cosmic crit Kitty B and David Willett spoiler alert actually i'm not going to recap this this is a documentary folks i can't force you to read a book but i can kind of force you to go watch this documentary it's available out there uh it is wonderful it is 90 minutes well spent so if you haven't watched the documentary go watch it do yourself a favor you know educate yourself a little bit about susan oliver and uh hollywood and television production and females working in Hollywood and television production and both sides of that coin and then come back and listen to the rest of this wonderful discussion with my niece, Caroline Davis. Great. So right off the bat, we see that, um, you know, we, we both watched it twice. We're both kind of nerds that way of like, Oh, well, I want to be very well prepared for this. Um, one of the things that I found in the director's commentary was uh, George Pappy, the director uh, said, he was watching the cage, the pilot episode of star Trek that Susan Oliver is iconic in and had watched it numerous times. But there was this one time that hit him. It was like, you know what, who is that? What, what, uh, you know, what else has she been in and pulled up her IMDB and it's about a mile long. Uh, she has been in everything with seemingly everyone, but it's one of those things where as popular as star Trek is, and as iconic as her performance is in the cage, if you say Susan Oliver to anybody, they'll stare at you blankly. Um, what were, you know, because you mentioned that you do a lot of research for this craft yes. that you love. Have you ever uncovered any nuggets while researching something that you were already a fan of? Oh, my gosh. All the yeah. time. Forever. Yes. <laughs> Anything absolutely. specific? Yeah. Um, most recently, this is, this is not related to Hollywood. Yeah, is that yeah. okay? Okay. Yeah. Most recently I I'm a big, um, theater history nerd. I teach it. Mm -hmm. I kind of have to be. And there's this one actor from like the restoration era and his name is Charles Macklin. And he's kind he was kind of a jerk to be honest. And like the whole story is not worth getting into, but 
essentially one of the things he's famous for is he got in an argument with a, a fellow actor named Thomas Hallam over a wig. Like it was a, it was an argument over a wig and uh, the argument over the stupid wig got so heated that uh, Charles Macklin may or may not have accidentally did, but wasn't an accident. Who can say uh, stabbed Thomas Hallam through the eye with his cane, killing him what? <laughs> over a wig, <laughs> over a wig. Um, and I knew this and I, I I always share that story with my students to explain why he was like kind of yeah, a dicey dude, yeah. you know. Um, uh, but when I I, I went to uh, the Actors Theater in London when I was there, this or the Actors Church when, in London when I was there this fall. And uh, there's a memorial plaque to him on the wall and above the plaque, there are theater masks and there's a cane going through the eye of one of the theater masks. And I was like, this is such a weird thing to reference on his memorial like his wife paid the church to have this memorial plaque and here's this reference to this guy he murdered over a wig oh, on the plaque so funny um wow so yeah whenever stuff clicks like that right it's such a cool and yeah. weird uh weird moment uh and i was even thinking in thinking about susan mm -hmm. oliver and going through and again her name meant nothing to me at all um but by the end of the documentary thinking about all of the films and television that she was and the people yeah. that she was around all of whom have survived and all of whom you know by name if nothing else i mean the alfred hitchcock hour andy griffith right there's they're all of these yeah. iconic Eastwood, robert Duvall, like uh, elizabeth taylor right joe yeah, crawford yeah. right we could go on for the rest of the podcast just talking about the close artistic relationship she had with yeah. people we all know and the fact that she was in such close proximity to so many and didn't ever become name recogni recognizable name yeah, recognition that re name recognition yeah that they that they did yeah herself yeah. is 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 a is not surprising but it is still disappointing yeah you know I mean? yeah i i wonder i wonder if it was i mean we'll we'll get into this a little bit a little bit more that i wonder if because she approached things maybe like an outsider and was making unpopular choices behind the camera that that set her apart. I mean, she, I mean, in looking at any of the footage from early on in her career, you see that she's absolutely stunning and, uh, and incredibly talented, uh, cause she stands right next to legends that we, that you and I just rattled off. She stands right next to him and plays right along with them. Um, but I got, I got to think either something, it's, it's something that just made people say, no, we're going to pass on Susan. And I think a lot of that, uh, you know, without going too much into it, I think a lot of that was due to the upper ups at Warner brothers. Cause I know she made some waves and uh, backed out of some things uh, contract wise that kind of, maybe uh, stepped on some people's toes and it seems like those, I, I know I've experienced it doing stand-up comedy. I'm sure you have uh, working in theater and, and, and many different creative endeavors as big as the community might be. It's still who, you know, and who you did a favor for and who's, whose good side are you on? Or did I upset somebody because I raised my eyebrow incorrectly or, whatever it was. And uh, yeah, I, w I wonder if it was just, she ticked off the wrong person and it was, and and the rest is history, but yeah, it, it's, it's been interesting learning about her career uh, going back in her life. I saw that uh, she finished high school 
in a month. Who I, like, okay, I understand times were different then, but as somebody who, when they handed him the little folder, got back to his seat and opened it to check to make sure the diploma was in there, <laughs> that is really impressive. But I also, again, I want to toot your horn a little bit. You skipped a grade in school, correct? What I did. I did. I did, skipped a grade. Uh, what grade um, and... Were there any ripple effects from that? Did you experience? I mean, you were probably pretty young at the time. Wasn't it like fifth or sixth grade? No. See, okay. It gets less impressive the more I tell uh, you. Yeah, that. go Are ahead. Are you ready? Um, so I skipped the first grade. So I went from kindergarten and did first grade uh-huh. work in kindergarten because I, I guess I was bored and I, I was obnoxious about being bored. And so they were like, give her harder work. And then, uh, so I skipped first grade. I homeschooled the next year for oh. second grade and then came back for third grade. So I really, I went institutionally from kindergarten to third grade, um, which was, which was odd. Yes. And, um, and I do think that it, it it didn't, it wasn't weird once I got used to being the youngest until I started college because I started college younger. Right. So I I can only imagine how Susan, because being 17, when everybody else was 18, there were just a couple of weird things that, that meant differently for me. And I can't imagine having finished high school in one month. And I don't know if that says more about Susan or more about the educational expectations mm, at the time. Yeah, for Susan. yeah maybe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, but I do think it probably helped because she, it seems like she went to Japan to be with her father for a brief time yeah. right after that and did some schooling over there too. So I wonder if maybe there, what does that look like? Right. In Japan uh, at the time, was there some sort of like bridge program yeah. or, or, did you go to college at a different age? Maybe I don't. I don't know. I haven't done yeah. that homework, but um, but a fascinating tidbit about somebody who you can tell later is always yeah. Thinking. You can you can see oh well because somebody somebody said in the documentary or maybe in the director's commentary I can't remember which um, when that camera is tight on her face you can almost literally see the wheels turning and it's just that is mm-hmm. that is an incredible gift of performance but also i i always equate something like that to extreme intellect to be that connected and to know what kind of nuance there's going to be to show this moment uh when the camera is inches from my face um you know the other interesting thing about susan and her life was at one point she was training to be a nun and for and for <laughs> yeah. uh, for a blonde blue-eyed bombshell like Susan was that's kind of shocking now to take it back to the Davis family uh i've mentioned it <laughs> in passing a few times on the show but the davises to a point were very religious um now we have grown and learned and experienced different facets of life uh, I will point to, I think the turning point was the passing of my mother, your grandmother. That was a big turning point for our family in terms of our relationships to each other and our relationship with, I'll just say organized religion. Yeah. Did you, Because you were much younger at the time. Do you mind talking about how that affected you uh, personally, and then moving forward as someone who conveys the human condition on a regular basis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, 
it shifted pretty much everything yeah. for me. And at first it was really devastating to decide that organized religion was uh, kind of crunchier than mm. I realized it, yeah. <laughs> it was. And it does still, I think, play a role in how I operate. I still identify as kind of spiritual, but irreligious, which I think is not as uncommon mm. as it used to be yeah. to kind of feel that way. And, and with that, I think in a lot of ways, I think it's actually helped my artistry because when you're, and not to say that you can't have firmly held religious beliefs and be a good artist, but I think for me in particular, like my, my need to access human emotion and empathy and understanding is very much something that I, I think about Mm -hmm. in the immediate and very much something that I think, um, I, I feel like our time is limited. And so I think that kind of raises the stakes to use an acting term with regard to the way that I interact. I'm not counting on another life after this one. And so I want to pour as much as I can into the one I do have. And the way that that translates to telling other people's stories, it becomes storytelling and religion really go hand in hand. And I think in a sense for me, my storytelling as an artist has become a virgin, a version, not a virgin, (laughs) a, a version of my uh, religious and spiritual yeah. practice, right? Because I mean, they both kind of have their origins in uh, sharing knowledge, sharing truth, uh, finding ways to understand one another and love one another, and um, having a set of rituals that you practice for comfort. And so for me, theater is my church now, for sure. And uh, I can see where, think just thinking about how this relates to Susan, right? Going from this idea of maybe being a mm. nun and then, which I also find fascinating given the context of her mother's profession as this like Hollywood uh-huh. psychic, yeah. right? Was that a rebellion against mom in the first maybe. place? <laughs> but I could easily see how this, the way that she really forged her own path, the way that she took opportunities when she wanted those opportunities and really made a life for herself. I think there's a lot of crossover between what you see people do for religious purposes and what you see them do for their artistic yeah. purposes, you know, because uh, there, there's just a lot of crossover there. So uh, a fascinating tidbit. I still have a hunch, although I don't know for sure. I have a hunch that it could have been a little bit of rebellion. You know almost. what? I I think that's a solid theory. Uh, and I mean, the evidence lends itself to it for sure. I know. And it's been interesting to see um, from my end seeing certain people in my life who use who use religion and i think this kind of goes to uh, what we were talking about with susan who use religion as a reason to do something else um or a reason to justify a certain type of behavior we see a lot of that today with you know people let's not sugarcoat it spouting all kinds of horrendous hate on groups who are just trying to live their lives and these people are being persecuted by folks who are using religion as their excuse for that and i know i I, personally i've always had to say it's not all of us they don't speak for all of us (laughs) (laughs) right they they are they are Picking and choosing what they want to, you know, they are highlighting certain portions of the Bible out of context. Like that is not, they, that is not what it's meant to be. Uh, I went to a concert recently um, uh, by the Greenville Gay Men's Chorus and anybody who's, you know, following the show uh, on Instagram may have seen 
uh, the Christmas concert that I posted pictures of, and I made a point to note the banners that were hanging in this church, which I don't think the chorus had anything to do with, but those banners were hope, peace, love, joy. I was like, that's it in a nutshell. You know, and we, we are not called to be God's bloody hand of vengeance. That's not us. Okay. It's not spelled out in the Bible, but that's God doesn't need us to do anything. (laughs) If, if, if that's, if that's what you subscribe to, you need to realize that, you know, that we're, we are called to, to love each other and to give and to help and to spread peace and all of these things. And that's not exclusive to Christianity either. (laughs) There's a lot of religions where that's the basis. Uh, But yeah, you know, seeing uh, Susan uh, almost take that path uh, was very interesting. I would have loved to have had a religious and philosophical discussion with her. She may have gotten into it in her, in her autobiography, I'd love to get my hands on a copy of it. It's very expensive now because it 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 came out when I was born, so <laughs> oh, it's it's very hard to get your hands on a copy now. But uh, yeah, um, you know, so one of the things that Susan experienced in her career was the dynamics of film versus television. And again, 1950s, early 1960s, it was very different than it is today. Uh, film was held in very high regard, whereas television was brought to you by Ajax Soap, you know, or, uh, you know, all the, you know, everything. There's so many different shows that were named after the sponsor. So, you know, if you deep dive on a lot of that stuff, television was a box in your house meant to sell you things and it still is, but, um, you know, it was very different. Film was still considered very high art while television was viewed as lower art, we'll say. Um, you know, but as things went along, people started to realize that the, the public's view of TV stars versus film stars, the TV stars actually had that bigger connection to their audience because their audience was actually inviting that performance into their home. It's a very intimate thing. Whereas you had to get dressed up and go out to a theater to experience the high art. So those, they didn't get the interaction that the TV stars did. Um, So that was an interesting thing for her to experience. Now you uh, being in the theater, you know, here we are uh, two years after COVID um, you uh, experienced yeah. it. I experienced it in comedy. COVID hit. Theater live performances were gone. <laughs> temporarily, temporarily, temporarily yeah. did. Um, talk yeah. a little bit about your experience going from from the footlights to a ring light, as it were, uh, okay. and and yeah. everything that that entailed. You know, working uh, on working theatrically on the internet. Oh God, just the worst. <laughs> Here's the thing though. Here's the thing. So all entertainment, and I think I think this is true of, of any form of entertainment that we at least have some sort of definitional understanding yeah. of today, um, is we are driven by innovation. And I think that, that COVID, as, as hard as it was in so many ways, provided the opportunity to force artists to innovate in ways that I do think are going to actually stay with, with the various mediums that they impacted for ever. Yeah. 
right? Um, and in thinking about just like, I'm going to, I'm going to start with a historical perspective on it. And then I'm going to cut to how COVID specifically yeah. was interesting. Um, but in thinking, so as, as a, as a theater historian, right. Um, the relationship between something like television and, and theater is actually interesting or film and theater is actually interesting because before we had mm-hmm. film, it yeah. was theater. That was the source of, of our public entertainment, whether that was, um, you know, it could have been vaudeville, something more along closer to stand-up comedy, which you do. Um, but it was live performance before yeah. it was film. And so what happened, like it, it, even in, in early, like in New York, right, right before uh, film became a big thing, New York was a thriving theater community and, and scene. And it was easy for you as an artist, as an actor, as a young actress like Susan Oliver was when she started to come into a place like New York City, become an apprentice for a, a rep company, a company that does a bunch of different stories and uh, has the same company do all these different stories, she could come in as an apprentice to someone who was more established, work as the milkmaid or whatever, um, gain some reputational, gain, gain some reputation, and then become a lead actor on stage. But what happened was when film and television started to become this competing form mm-hmm. of entertainment, theater had to start and still to this day uh, does this had to start relying more on recognizable names, recognizable commodities in order to get yeah. butts in seats. Um, if you look at what Broadway is today, uh, it's a lot of Frozen the musical and Back to the Future the musical. And, um, you know, these things that already have a dedicated fan base and following because the money is important and making sure people want to go enough mm-hmm. to, to get there yep. is important. Um, it's a lot harder for a name you've never heard to excite you enough to get you right. to buy a ticket. Um, so what happened in New York during that time was they had to replace the whole training system. And we, we'll get into Susan's training later, but that necessitated the training shifting from actually in the theaters to dedicated schools for actors yeah. because we can't afford to have the milkmaid role anymore go to someone unknown. It That also has to be somebody known so that we can yeah. keep our audiences. So then even mo- moving forward, you have the same sort of competition happening between television and film where, you know, uh, you start to see that even more. Well, or at first, film was its own kind of exciting medium where you would just want to go to see a talkie, right? Like the idea of seeing somebody not really there, but talking to you is, it is in and of itself yeah. enough of a draw to get an audience. But then over time, well, now we've got televisions in our homes. Why would I leave right. to go to see a yeah. talkie anymore? So then moving forward, even from that, now we have uh, immediate releases yep. into our homes. St- streaming. Right. And then we have the COVID pandemic, which again, forced us to take stock of what an audience is willing to do when they don't even have to leave Uh their homes. Right. I'm not even asking you to get in the car, get out in the rain to come see this. You can literally do this from your house. And it still seems like this monumental task to get you to do it. (laughs) Um, So so the, the hoops have just kind of constantly been shifting and getting smaller. It feels like, and then COVID set the hoops on fire. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so for me as an artist, right, it was a lot of like, um, f- I think the downfall for, for me actually was trying to preserve too much of what theater is when it's at mm. its best. The theater that I actually, and the art in general that I found most exciting during the pandemic was people who took what happens on a screen and made that 
and, and played on the strengths yeah. of that yeah. in their work. Um, there's a beautiful production in Chicago, uh, Brian Quijada's uh, Where Did They Sit on the Bus? And it was filmed by one actor. She played the the Brian character, essentially. And she sat in her apartment and filmed this entire full-length one-person like solo show um, and would be on a Zoom call with a director setting the lights for the shot with lights at her house and being like, how does this look? And so what ends up happening is it's it was all just her and her apartment because they were shut down in Chicago at the time. But because of that and because of the dedication and the work to make it as good as Mm -hmm. what it would have been if it were a three three week full time rehearsal process in a theater space, it's this beautifully compelling piece of theater that tells a, a sincere story and the heart that is put into it by this performer, not only because she's telling the whole story herself, but also because she's setting up every single one of her own shots. She's doing the lights for all of her own stuff. Wow. Um, it, it blew me away. Yeah. And so I think for, for me and in thinking about just like the, because competition is I think a recurring theme when we're talking about entertainment as unfortunate as that is, because, you know, going from three, television channels in the mid 20th century to unlimited yeah. options means that you have to fight yeah. a little harder. And it's that hurt. part of show business there, it, you know, mm-hmm. you got it. If you don't have the show, you're not going to have the business, but you need the business to have a show. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tricky thing to try to reconcile. And, you know, there's, there's a the artist in you that wants to just stay true to the art, but then there's like, oh, my phone bills do, like, uh, you know, and and stuff, you know, ram, you know, uh, the ripple effects of those types of things. Moving along, I wanted to get into a little bit of you know Susan's life, you know, going to New York. But then also being involved in film at that time, if it was film, it's L.A. It has to be. It was that's Hollywood. Right. Um, so she was back and forth for a good long while until she had a, a scare on a plane and then went and hypnotized herself, got hypnotized uh, <laughs> to lose the fear of flying. You know, fear plays such a big role in performance i found anybody that i've talked to about stand-up is just oh i can't imagine going on stage with nothing but your own thoughts and sustaining that i was like really you're a first responder you run into burning buildings you you've dodged bullets like (laughs) (laughs) we we may need to redefine what fear is but like fear for different people is different things um you know you being involved in theater since the age of, you know, five, um, I don't imagine there was a lot of fear of performance growing up or am I mistaken? Really? Okay. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this because you've, you've always come across to me as a super strong performer who sticks the landing every time. Um, but yeah, I te- whatever you're comfortable, you know, telling me, uh, yeah. How, how did that play out for you? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think actually, uh, this might be a wrong statistic, but I'm pretty sure that the fear of public speaking is like the second most common. Yeah. Fear, yeah. Right. It's, it's like death and then, or maybe public speaking and then death. It's something 
<laughs> I think you might be right about that. <laughs> Strange. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I obviously I'm used to it now. And I think that teaching is a part of that too, right? You can't really be a teacher and not talk to a group of, in front of a group of people right. literally every day. That's part of your job. Um, it similarly to, to being a stand-up comic or a podcast yeah. host, right? Um, but no, certainly have never, ever gotten over that. And, um, I, I still get nerves and I used to play the piano. And so like, I remember before opening night, the nerves from opening night would be like, I wish I could just do a piano concert because then I wouldn't have to talk and that would be better. And then right before piano concerts, I'd be backstage going, I wish I could just be on stage. So I wouldn't have to worry about what my fingers were doing. It's just this weird <laughs> constant anxiety um, that I don't, I truly, I don't think it ever goes away, at least for folks that are, that have that as a part of their yeah. nature. Right. I think that you just develop different ways of coping and different like you, you, you have a system for yourself that you discover sometimes by accident, sometimes because yeah. you work on it to make sure that the fear doesn't become so overwhelming that you can't yeah. do the thing. Yeah. I think that, I think that plays a big part of it. I, I mean, with all your technical training, I'm sure there's been a lot of um, techniques for managing that feeling, being able to, but being able to use it to convey emotions on stage which you know to get a good performance that's kind of what you have to do i think for me i think i didn't have an issue with stand-up comedy because i had been involved with martial arts where mm. we are wearing pajamas we are punching and kicking the air and screaming our heads off and people are watching and applauding <laughs> so uh <laughs> you know that that seems more ridiculous to me than getting up there with jokes that I have crafted, like I have specifically worded this thing to, to bring about laughter. Um, and it's an open mic. So if it doesn't work, I'll go fix it and I'll see you guys next week. But it's, I think that helped me. And then that, that fear being able to manage the fear, I think had, uh, two different effects on me when I went to play football uh, as a and it was a 170 pound lineman got across from guys two three times my size uh the martial arts helped there because i was like yeah i've fought i've fought bigger guys not a big deal but also that fear if you recall the movie fight club you know after being in a fight everything else in your life gets the volume turned down there is an yes. aspect of when you know how to manage your fears I think there's a, I think there's something in your brain that kind of just maybe not even consciously, maybe it's a subconscious thing of just like, this isn't important. Let's just go ahead and turn the volume down. It's not that big of a deal. And, you know, to vary degrees of uh, <laughs> success or failure, <laughs> but yeah, you know, you end up, you know, looking at things in a job. I've had a couple of desk jobs where you know, a boss was upset about a thing and I, while they're talking to me, I just, just pushing the mute button <laughs> and just let them keep yelling and I'll just keep nodding. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Terribly yeah, sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> have you seen any, have you seen any negative effects of dealing with fear? Oh my gosh. Well, okay. Yes. Cause I'm afraid of everything. I, but I think, I think the pandemic also made that a, yeah, a thing again yeah, for that me brought, in a big way. That brought it about, you know? that brought it back for a lot of folks, for sure. Yeah. And I think about, so just, so we've given a little bit of the context for the one person who has not yet watched 
Green Girl, but will. Um, my favorite part of the whole story of Susan uh, trying to get over this fear as the result yeah. of this terrible thing. Okay, am, I, am I allowed? Is that a spoiler? No, if I no, share? It's history. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. Um, so the fact that she's she did a first international flight and she comes back on this plane with Gene Kelly. My favorite part of that whole story is they're on this plane. The plane crashes or it goes goes yeah. down in a negative way yeah. somehow, right? It, it's a scary emergent flight emergency. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the fact that the whole time that was happening, she was thinking, oh, my gosh, if I die in this plane crash with Gene Kelly in the plane, the, the news is going to the billing is going to be bad for me. And I'm I'm it's going to be Gene Kelly died and also me listed alphabetically <laughs> underneath him. I can't have that happen. Right. And so my favorite part of that whole story is it was yes, it was terrifying. But the fact that she had the sort of career awareness within that to be like, but the big problem is my memory already. Yeah. Right. Um, Is so funny. And so I think again, like telling about how calculated and smart she was as a person throughout her life. Um, But then to the impulse from that point uh, to, to get hypnotized, to come over Mm -hmm. this fear is I think a really interesting choice for somebody whose mother was a, a psychic and who consider being a nun, right? Like I, I, most of my religious friends that I know would trust God before they would trust course, a hypnotist, right? To like help yes. them <laughs> come over In the South, things. are you kidding? Um, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, Jesus, take the Big wheel, no. right? Literally. <laughs> so so I, I do, I think that's really interesting. Um, and I, I see that in myself too, a little bit. Like I, so I really want to try do you know, have you heard about the the therapy that they do where they give you, they microdose you ketamine and then like talk yep. you through your life. And then after like three doses of ketamine, of, of microdosed ketamine, you're like fixed. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I've heard a little bit about I, this. Yeah. This is how it's built anyway. And I did, I actually, I went in and I, like, I did the quiz to see if really? I would qualify for this like ketamine therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, it's ketamine, which I don't know a lot about, but I think it's not good um, for you, right? I, I, I barely, I did not pass chemistry. So I will, <laughs> I, I am not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that need to find a solution that will work yeah. really quickly, no matter the yeah. cost, right? Because for her, it was a, it was a, it was a hypnotist. Right. Um, for me, it could still possibly be ketamine. We'll see. But um, that that kind of desperate need to find a solution to this uh, anxiety that has good cause to exist is something that can go too yeah. far, I think. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, we've mentioned it a couple times, and I think this might be a good time to jump ahead and get into it now. Uh, the idea of Susan's relationship with her mother uh, and... Mm everything that that sort of was the catalyst for in her life, positive or negative. And uh, you've performed with everyone in your family, everyone in your immediate yeah. family, at least. We, have, yes, I think so. Have we performed together? We've never done anything together. Have we, were we on a, Give the video for your wedding. That, Does that count? Yes, I'll count that. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll count that too. It's not on my CV, but I should add it. <laughs> Come through love directed by Todd A. Davis. There, there you go. <laughs> Some of my best work, to be honest. <laughs> well, you know what? As the writer director, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but, you know, we've 
you know, been performers and you've, you know, you've worked uh, with your family. In fact, I, if I'm not mistaken, that performance uh, that you gave as a five-year-old was alongside your father, my oldest brother. Correct. Uh, what, what Correct. sort of experiences, positive, negative, short-term, long-term, have there been in your life from performing with your family? I think one of the biggest things is expectations, mm-hmm. right? Because when people know your family or or have a relationship with somebody else in your family and you're introduced as so-and-so's right. blank, you're not coming in carte blanche right. at that point. There are certain associations that whoever it is already has with who you might be based on who that right. person is. Um, I That plays out in a variety of ways. And I think for me, when I was younger, at least, it really resulted in trying very hard not to be associated with that. Uh, and then to surprise people later on, to see, to to give them a chance to form their own opinion about me, which uh, I think I overdid oh, a little okay. bit, right? And I don't, I don't feel that way at all anymore, but I've also had a lot of opportunity now to establish myself in other places where that wasn't mm-hmm. a thing. I, in thinking about how that, I will say, I do think the documentary... Um, really kind of painted this crunchy picture of of mom right like yeah uh it there were it and i don't know enough to know for sure if if how whether there's another side to right. that story or not uh but we do sort of get the impression at least that mom's career as this hollywood mm-hmm. psychic with these connections uh was maybe in there was an insinuation at some point that perhaps mom was jealous of uh-huh. susan's success yep. right um and so I was wondering about whether that, if if that were a portion of this, which again, I I don't want to make any assumptions about their relationship that I don't have the full information right. on, right? But if if that were the case that I could see very easily how it would be, it, it would kind of make sense then that Susan would make the choices that she made professionally to be a featured actor on so many shows rather than pigeonhole herself to one role that then became part of her identity in the entertainment sphere, because there's that, that need to Mm self-define, especially if everybody's saying, Oh, you're so-and-so's daughter. No, I'm me. And I'm going to do 18 different versions of people you've never even heard of or thought about to prove to you that I am me and not so-and-so's daughter. Like I I could see that being a thing. Yeah, I, I think. think with uh with everything that we see in terms of Susan and her relationship with her mother, quite literally before we got on, I just finished watching the documentary Senior uh about Robert, Robert Downey, Downey Jr. and right? Robert Downey Jr. uh and watching um the story of RDJ's father as an underground filmmaker and coming up and what sort of effects that had on his son, who is now arguably one of the biggest stars in the world. Robert had an idea of doing a documentary about his dad and about their life together. So many people, they know Robert Downey Jr., but they don't know Robert Downey Sr. He's a talented underground filmmaker named Robert Downey. Have you seen any of Grandpa's movies? No, why? Because they're awesome. Do you want to see them someday? Do people try to ascribe meaning to your movies? Oh, my God. I hope not. So what do we want to talk about? Everything. Oh, boy. I'm very interested in who my dad is just in the here and now. No one knows the hour and the day. We never know how much time we have with each other. So who is this guy? I'll never know. 
How you been? Um, okay. Is it a struggle? Is it challenging? Is it scary? On a certain day, any of those. It's not time to make a change. It's a bit of a foray into trying to understand your dad. You're still young. That's you feel like you understand him now. I have a feeling I'll know a lot more when we're done. I was once like you are now. I just remember that cacophony of creativity, but mostly laughter. How would you describe that period of time? 15 years of total sanity. All the times that I've cried, keep it all. I think we would be remiss to not discuss its effect on me. But it's harder to. Well, I could sure love to miss that discussion. <laughs> Whatever's unfolding, funny or tragic, it's happening with the camera going. But then there's some part of me that feels like, oh, I'll miss something. It was this idea that films kind of brought us together, and to this day, still do. We're still happy with the title Senior, are we not? Yeah, I like it, but we can we can do better. Oh. And that is a fascinating, fascinating story. And of course, the dynamics between a father and son are going to be different than the dynamics between a mother and daughter, for sure. And of course, at two different time periods. But I think those make an interesting companion piece to to view to view to juxtapose and it's 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 really fascinating to me because uh, you know on my other show cinema shock you know we dive into all kinds of weird cult and genre films and i was just like how have we not talked about anything bob downey did like the just mm. the clips of stuff from the documentary was like this dude was out there for sure and then when you see the time that those things were coming up and knowing that RDJ was, you know, hitting his teens and early twenties in the drug fueled eighties, like it's kind mm -hmm. of, Oh, okay. And that's how things played out. Yeah. And then seeing his, him getting his life together and now coming back and all that. And gosh, I, I really, it just makes, it just makes my heart break for Susan who was so talented and dealt with so much in her life that, gosh, if she hadn't gotten sick, she could have been one of the biggest female directors of television, at least in the 90s, where you've got stuff like Dr. Quinn and Melrose Place. And she could have been, I mean, she probably still uh, to a degree uh, because of her involvement with setting up the, uh, I know I should have written down the name of the group uh, establishing you know, uh, directing training for women. Um, did you happen to jot that down? <laughs> I didn't know, but it, it was, it was, yeah, it was fe it's prominently it featured was, in the documentary. I highly, highly suggest people uh, go take a look at the documentary and learn all about it. It's a great program. But then you look at folks like, uh, you know, Gates McFadden from Star Trek, the next generation, mm -hmm. um, very accomplished, even before she got to TNG worked with Jim Henson, classically trained did like, the uh -huh. labyrinth right did was the director of yeah Puppetry, she and she uh or, yeah she was yeah. involved she was involved she was heavily involved on you know she wasn't just running mm -hmm. coffee like she was very involved with the production <laughs> and uh and even 
had a couple of on-screen roles in a couple of those films and then gets to TNG and they don't give her a shot at directing until late in the final season. They finally throw her a bone. Uh, meanwhile, LeVar Burton, Jonathan Frakes, not to take anything away from those guys. They're fantastic directors, but you can't ignore the facts. <laughs> like She was also very talented and got overlooked for most of it. Um, but then, you know, I think things did get a little bit better once uh, Star Trek Voyager rolled around and we've got Roxanne Dawson as Belana Torres, the half human, half Klingon engineer who goes on to be an amazing television director uh, with credits out the wazoo. She's directed all kinds of stuff. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that Maybe she didn't break through, but she certainly that Susan Oliver certainly made a crack and was able to maybe get that ball rolling just slightly. And we've gotten some amazing things, you know, for folks out there who do kind of want to deep dive on some of these um, female sci-fi directors, which I highly, highly recommend, please go back and take a look. If, if, if nothing else, go back and look at Roxanne Dawson's episodes of star trek enterprise they are so great because they watch like horror films and i was like this is so great these two great genres being melded together so well and uh, she does it just so effortlessly i mean granted she's got a great team behind her but she it's her name on the bill as director like she's the one it's 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 her show so uh you know those were so wonderful. I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, her training that we mentioned a little bit and specifically some of the comedy along with drama. She did more drama than comedy, but from the small clips that we see in the documentary, her comedy was really, really funny. She stands she stands shoulder to shoulder with Jerry Lewis, like one of the greatest comedic actors, um, you know, uh, of our, well, he's since passed, but like he's, he's a legend and she stood right next to him. Like talk a little bit because you uh, for all your dramatic training are a very accomplished comedic actress as well. Comedian. Uh, I've, uh, we won't go into it, and I certainly won't force you to do it, but I've never heard someone spit such sick rhymes <laughs> uh, like Caroline Davis. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I, I've officially retired from my rap career, and my students now don't believe it's real, and I, I'm not going to prove Fair it to enough. them. Fair enough. I know, and you know, and there yeah. are enough people who know. Um, yeah, no, uh, everything that you said, right, is, is, is spot on, and I, I think in particular, Susan Oliver, um, as, as somebody who kind of threw the, at least maybe didn't throw the door open, but made a crack in the door by saying, just because you don't see me as a director, just because you don't see me as this doesn't mean I shouldn't right. be able to do it. Uh, and, and even just putting that idea into mm. the universe and giving the folks in her circles, uh, a second thought about why they perceived this particular role in a gendered yeah. way, I think, uh, that contribution in and of itself can't be understated in the ways that it, it uh, helped the culture mm -hmm. at least start to shift. Um, but I do, I do think that one of the reasons that she is so successful uh, as a, an actor in, in 
both spheres, but then also as a director in the times that mm. she was able to, is uh, is because of her of her acting training and because of of the background that she was coming from. Uh, and people think of drama and comedy typically as two super different things. I I, I don't think you and I really see them no, as no. that. Uh, I don't want to speak for you, but because when you're <laughs> The one thing that you have to do when you're in a comedy is you have to take mm-hmm. it seriously. Like you were saying earlier, everybody else gets to laugh. You have to you have to be the person who thinks it's real and is living the nightmare that is so funny to everybody else. Lucille Ball, who uh, is another comedian and sort of early female producer human who is directly responsible for Star Trek. We don't want to leave her exactly. out of this conversation either. So well known for her ability to, uh, like, you know, the famous conveyor belt chocolate eating scene is such a good example of why comedy, you have to take comedy seriously because if she had given away the joke, right. we wouldn't have enjoyed it. Never a wink, audience. never a wink at um, the camera or anything like that. She played it. She played it straight. Yeah. And you have to, you, and that's the hardest thing about comedy that people often overlook is you, and the, the one in the documentary, they show this clip and it's the, the cigar, cigar yeah. scene in Burke's yeah. law. Uh, where basically they're just like she's trying to hide that somebody's been there smoking a cigar they say is that your cigar she says yes of course it's my cigar i will smoke it oh dear the lighter is doesn't work there's no juice left in the lighter and they're like we'll light it for you and now she's stuck smoking this cigar that she clearly can't stand and then they're like why do you smoke cigars and she's like because my daddy loves cigars and they're like you hated your dad she's like, it's complicated. <laughs> right i mean that's essentially what the scene is and it's, it's such a beautiful because again she's not playing that it's funny that she's stuck in this situation she's playing that she's yep. stuck in the situation yep. right um and you kind of have to do the opposite when you're working in drama where um the if you so there's this great anecdote and i forget who it's attributed to but in uh in acting classes you hear about it a lot where uh the young actress comes off stage and she goes to the acting teacher and she says oh I was really in the role tonight I those were real tears I felt every inch of what I was doing out on that stage I was crying and sobbing and uh she goes on about how like worn out she is emotionally from doing the, the dramatic scene and the acting teacher responds mm, how wonderful you cried and then he points to the audience and said, if only you had been able to make that, ah. you know, or something like that. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, so there's this balance to be found when you're doing drama of it's still a story that has to be communicated and you can feel all day long. But if you're not communicating the story through that, it's going to get lost anyway. Um, what we see Susan do in all of her many, many specials over the mid 20th century and all her various television features in particular is uh is pay mind to both mm. of those halves mm-hmm. right um and, and work very carefully and i think that's because so she was trained at the neighborhood playhouse which is still a functioning playhouse like it's still functioning theater um and it it was one of those that started really small uh the the i think it opened in the 20s right yeah, and the first so. class was just a very small number of students who were trained by people like Agnes DeMille and Martha Graham. Like, I mean, the biggest names in entertainment you can think of, right? Um, So she was trained there. And that's also where Sanford Meisner got his kind of developed Meisner technique, which is one of the three really prominent techniques that actors, regardless of the medium, kind Mm -hmm. of are trained in, at least in America, in when we're thinking about contemporary acting styles. so the Meisner technique is I'm actually I'm trained in Stanislavski and uh, I went the kind of Stella Adler approach 
but three big names in American acting training were uh, Sanford Meisner, Stella Adler, and yep. Lee Strasberg. And um, Stella and Lee got in a huge, not huge, maybe it was huge. Who can really might say? Been, might have been huge, huge. right? <laughs> <laughs> but they got in a pretty, they, they disagreed about acting training in the sense that Strasberg was really into emotional memory and recall, um, things that kind of led to what we would consider now when we're looking at film acting in particular, that sort of method acting where Daniel Day-Lewis goes into the woods to become Abraham Lincoln right, or whatever right. it is, you know. Um, that's kind of the Lee Strasberg is the person who kind of set that kind of acting in motion, really. Stella Adler argued that you can do the same kind of thing, but by utilizing imagination instead of your own personal emotional mm. experiences. Um, that's kind of where I tend to fall when I'm thinking about my own like process for acting is I, I, I don't try to like kill my dog every time I need to do a dramatic right. scene because that's, that doesn't right. work for me. Um, and, and for me, it's not sustainable at all for some people. It can be, but for mm. me, it's just not, um, but Meisner was really big on like emotional prep for a scene where you would uh, use some emotional recall and then kind of bring all of that into the first moment of the scene. And then a lot of his training was really focused on getting partners to listen to one another mm -hmm. and respond to what's happening in the space based on this sort of emotional catalyst that starts the scene off. And I think that her Meisner training is part of the reason that she's so successful. Yeah in tv and film because you can see that like she's like you said when that close-up happens you can tell she's thinking and when you see her interact with all of these major figures of tv and film through the 20th century she is listening and responding to them in real time and there's a there's not a performativity the way that you see it where um I am being sad, right? Right. She's never being sad. She's begging her partner to listen to her, but she's never just being yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. right. I, uh, when we had Spencer Garrett on the show, he spoke a little bit about, uh, his training, uh, the Meisner technique. And, uh, that's a fascinating look at a career. Uh, anybody who's wants to dive a little bit deeper on someone who's, um, uh, had extensive, extensive training, extensive work in uh, Meisner technique, go check out that episode that we did with uh, with Spencer Garrett. He was very gracious with his time and to cover a lot of his career with us. Uh, but yeah, you know, getting into the, some of those techniques, especially folks who were trained directly by those folks, um, you know, that creates a level of professionalism and a high quality of work um, that is to be envied for sure, especially by other professionals who maybe got there by showing up and being in the right place at the right time. That happens a lot too. Um, but you know, one of the things that I found that was so interesting, and we'll get back into some of the deeper, headier topics, uh, regarding Susan's life, work, career, the whole thing. But one, you know, to go back to Star Trek for a minute, uh, it's known by, uh, you know, more, uh, uh, studious fans of of the franchise that when when Gene Roddenberry and his folks put together the pilot episode The Cage which featured Susan Oliver that it didn't get picked up it did not get the green light from NBC now NBC I'm sure has kicked themselves plenty for that but uh the director George Pappy uh puts forth the idea that he thinks Part of the reason that it didn't get picked up was because Susan Oliver 
in addition to being striking and beautiful in the whole thing, she was so talented that she outshone everyone else on screen, including mm-hmm. legendary Leonard Nimoy, legendary Majel Barrett. And that's not something you want. <laughs> you don't want your feature to outshine your regulars. Uh, so that's probably part of, uh, again, that's a theory by George Pappy. Uh, to be honest, I feel it's fairly valid. Uh, watching watching the cage is um, it's interesting. It's an interesting chapter in Star Trek lore for sure. But looking at it, uh, you know, it makes me think that uh, you know, while she did turn in an iconic performance, um, yeah, it probably outshone a lot of stuff. But you know, her iconic performance would live on because you spoke of uh, Lucille Ball, <laughs> who a lot of people forget. Without Lucy, we don't get Star Trek. We don't have Star Trek. <laughs> and it was yeah. so funny because even though the pilot wasn't actually seen for a couple decades after Star Trek had been on and off the air. Um, right. The final image that we saw in the closing credits for, I think, at least the first, if not the first two seasons was Susan Oliver with the Desilu logo right on her face and and just... That iconic image lived on and on still to this day. I can say Susan Oliver. Nobody knows what I'm talking about, but I say, hey, you ever see a green girl? They go, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about, a green girl. Um, In (laughs) fact, we were lucky enough to have one of the more modern green girls uh, from Star Trek Enterprise, uh, Menina Fortunato, who is a very accomplished uh, dancer and dance instructor, was very kind to carve out some time and come talk with us about her career Highly recommend people go check out that episode. She was a lot of fun to talk with. But, you know, looking at, uh, you know, the things that were involved with uh, Susan being on Star Trek and again, her talent just really outshining everyone. She had all the talent. And I know I've been Mm -hmm. in situations, I'm sure you have too, where you have all the talent, but the game is rigged. And um, she dealt with a she dealt with a system that was structured for her to not succeed. And she had to put up, you know, she really got into flying. How did she pay for that first film? She sold her plane like and she had to she had to call in favors from anyone and any everyone that she worked with and was able to scrounge up half a dozen folks who would put on a cowboy hat and some six shooters and come do this small little film. Um, She did get a handful of uh, television directing opportunities on mash um, and things like that, where uh, mash another iconic show, she only got one and, you know, different other opportunities where it might not have been the producers. It may have been another actor with a stick firmly inserted uh, that, just for whatever reason, they got bent out of shape about a woman telling them what to do. Uh, you've you've worked with a lot of folks and you yourself have directed a lot. Have you mm-hmm. dealt with this system? And what can you tell us about it uh, from your personal experience? Yeah, totally. Um, for sure. And I, I do think that it's worth noting we, ha- we still have a lot of things to address before there's true equity or right. parity. Yeah. In the in mm-hmm. the industry. It was particularly challenging in Susan. I mean, Susan was right. She was 
a, a starlet before she was even allowed right. to have a credit card. And so thinking about that kind of element of it is, is important. Like the, the, con- the historical context of gosh, it's hard now. I can't imagine how hard it was yeah. then. Right. Um, but yeah, so a couple of things on this one is, so thinking back to expectations, we've like, we've talked about how that plays a role in how you I, identify as an artist and then what you're, what you do as an artist too. Cause I think she was smart in that way by not getting a, a series regular super early on because she didn't pigeonhole herself into one type. She was able to play dr- drama and comedy because she never kind of committed, I yeah. guess is maybe yeah. a word yeah. to use, to one sort of character. Um, but I will say one thing I did notice mm. about the documentary. You probably mm. noticed this too. But I will say some of what you need to know about the culture of Hollywood or or performance entertainment kind of more generally is summed up in the way that many of the men in the language, many of the men in the documentary use to talk about her. Uh, The phrase that (laughs) there were two phrases that really stuck out to me in this regard. One was uh, one of the actors who worked with her said something to the extent of like, we all had lust in our hearts for Susan. (laughs) And I was like, that's a weird way to say you admired her, but okay. (laughs) And and then another was that uh, one of another male who's interviewed in the documentary says, you know, her demeanor was off-putting. I knew there was a formidable presence ah. in there. And it's like, why yeah. is that off-putting, right? <laughs> why is that off-putting? Uh, and so I think, uh, or being haunted by or drawn to this person, like I, those are things that I have a different sort of weight to them and expectations that come with them when you yeah. are female, I think. And um while she had the opportunity to play a bunch of different roles and a, a bunch of different kinds mm-hmm. of roles, um, I still think that there were kind of two arms of her. And and there are countless examples of yeah. this in the documentary, two arms of her professional life. One is the sex pot slash innocent slash tragic blonde who uh, is left alone because the man who was a man uh, has man things to do instead. And then there's like, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm yeah. generalizing yeah. grossly, right? <laughs> the dams, the dams. And then, and then, yes, yes, yes. And then the the other sort of wing of it is uh, this very dangerous and uh, oftentimes uh, having some sort of mental health crisis that is characterized in yeah. a bunch of different ways. Or I I have this uh, this drug addiction that's out of control. This like uncontrollable, scary yeah. lady. Or this thing that this object of desire to be controlled, like seems to be kind of the two facets of a lot of the opportunities, not all of them. And I, I, the, actually the Star Trek episode kind of falls into that. I mean, she's literally becomes a slave, right? So, so there's that element at play too. And that's not to say that any one person is responsible for that. That was just kind of the opportunities that were available at the time for female actors Mm -hmm. for the most part, you know? Um, and so when you're coming from a place where those are your options, it's referenced in the documentary, you know, how many times can you make, here's your coffee, honey, sound like it's yeah. an Ibsen, right? And I think there's a lot of a lot of truth to that. Um, and I, I also, I was thinking, though, about how this notion of playing the game, while it is certainly an uphill battle for women, and, and recently a lot of really cool things have actually happened to try to fix this. And um, I think there's been a lot more awareness of the inequity in specifically film mm-hmm, and television mm-hmm. lately um that's translated to theater too they they've done uh marcia norman a, a famous playwright did a, a publication called the count where they looked at 
the seasonal offerings by a bunch of uh, professional regional theaters in America to discover that the amount of women playwrights and women directors in theatrical spaces was like, it's like 10%, you know, I mean, something wow. really ridiculously Jeez. low for, you know, a place where over we, we account for over half of the population. And, um, but that publication came out and then three years later they did an update and just the publication alone and its ripple effects had caused the number to almost be doubled in, in certain oh, wow. demographic areas and arenas. Um, so things are getting better, but it's just like this weird thing where if you don't have, sometimes it's a direct institutional mm. barrier. You can't do this because you're a woman. Sometimes it's not that, but sometimes it's, I have never seen a woman director I don't see myself as that because I have no model. I have no frame of reference for yeah. what that would even be. So for somebody like Susan to say, no, I, I, I should be able to do this again. I think that's why she was so um, inspirational, even though her time in that kind of capacity was unfortunately and tragically yeah. cut short by her yeah. cancer. Um, but the other thing is, I don't think that's only a gendered issue. I mean, this notion of playing the game in Hollywood, I was thinking about, uh, Brendan Fraser actually oh, yeah. like and his return with the whale which is was a play first before it became a movie um but and hearing him talk about the things that he thinks happened behind closed doors that resulted in his career having a similar trajectory to Susan's in the sense that somebody super promising never just kind of maintained that level of stardom you yeah. would have expected as there is that if, if you are anybody who's willing to question the norms or to uh, speak out, I think when you talked a lot about fear earlier with regard to the flying, and I think this kind of factors into this is entertainment sectors tend to maintain status quo yeah. through fear by saying, if you question this, you're never going to work yeah. in this town again. If you say that I did this to you, you're never going to work in this town again. Yep. Um and I think when you're already facing uh, other kinds of institutional barriers, that kind of fear becomes harder to ignore or be yeah. brave through. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, to uh, to go back for just a second, I know we talked a little bit about uh, drama and comedy. And then here more recently, we talked about, you know, Susan not committing to one particular thing to be pigeonholed. One of the things that she did commit to was a little film called The Lovins. And I uh, I steered clear of it uh, because George Pappy was like, <laughs> Susan is wonderful in this almost unwatchable movie. Apparently it is that bad. Um, but again, swings for the fences. And uh, again, she's wonderful in it, but it's it's a stinker. Have there been any times uh, in your life or career, I got to think there's at least been a few where maybe it looked good on paper or sounds fun at the time and you get in and just, oh no, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> what have I done? Yeah, exactly. Dry, staring yes. to the camera. I've made a huge <laughs> mistake. Uh, yeah. Oh, certainly. I think any anybody, any artist like eventually has the one project that you're like, what the, what was I doing? What was I thinking? And I, there's a rule about this that a mentor of mine shared with me that I shall now impart yes, please. to you, which is, uh, you've probably heard this, but just in case you haven't three things, money, people, material, okay. any, any project that you work on needs two of the three. If it doesn't have two of the three, it's not worth your time. Okay. That's good rule. So the, That's a great yeah, rule. It, it's brilliant. <laughs> 
I wish I had learned it 10 years <laughs> earlier than I did. Um, but it's, so if you, if it's a low paying project, then it has to be people you love working with and material that's super solid because that's going to be life-giving, even if it's not okay. a moneymaker. If it's a crappy script, it better be a moneymaker and with people you could tolerate. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And if it's people you can't stand, then it better be the best script of all time and a whole lot of money to, to pay for putting yeah. up these people. Right. So um, that's how I think about right. it now. I didn't always. And I think. I, I don't uh, want to get you in trouble with anybody for, for spill it. For, oh, I'm okay, not okay. Names. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, Let's be as, we can be as diplomatic just, as possible, but as much as you are willing to share, we would love to hear. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, uh, we just talked about fear in the industry, right? I'm not naming names, right. but I will say um, one experience that I had that stands out to me as just like uh, when you're the person in the room that has more of an idea of what should be going on and no one will listen to you, uh, which I imagine Susan yes. experienced yes. a good bit too. And uh, it, it involved, I will say that it involved, um, I was asked to chug like actual alcohol really? on stage. <laughs> show yeah and i was like okay so there's this thing called props design and what you do is you take sparkling water and you put an alcohol logo over the sparkling water uh and then it doesn't stay closed and i don't actually get tipsy in the middle of the show um and then i was told no it's fine we've done this all the time and uh, it's mostly the same price point so you can just chug some pbrs um (laughs) and that's that was like that was so money material Mm -hmm. people that had one of the oh, three and not two of the three. And I think that's why it may have been a mistake. Um, Bummer. But you know what? That's the other thing is when, when that happens, when you do a show that you come off stage every night, kind of like, Ooh, I'm feeling fresh. You know, like <laughs> once you, once you have those experiences under your belt or like I had one, I was on tour for a show uh, where we, we were using like a, a dedicated iPad or like an I, gosh, it was, what was it before it was an iPhone? Uh, Blackberry? <laughs> it was just a, or, uh... No, it was an, oh, iPod, an iPod. An iPod. Oh, okay. oh yeah, gosh. Yeah. Back when it was just an iPod. So I had an I we had a dedicated show iPod that we would plug into the speakers to use because it was like we were just on tour. So we would just unload and do the show and reload. But the iPod was messed up and so it wouldn't work. And so I had to plug in my personal phone to play the music that oh, we needed for the no. show, which is always a danger. And I had to find the song online so I couldn't put my phone on airplane mode because it was, I needed to access, I didn't have the file on my phone. So it's a touring production of Goldilocks and the Three Bears for what had to have been like at least 600 kindergarteners. And yeah, it was the highlight of my career for me, obviously. And uh, it actually, it was a really fun show to do. But um, in the middle of one of the performances uh, for that show, my phone goes off and starts ringing and I'm on stage and I say something like, Oh no, I'm going to go get that. Or I mean, I just like, I don't know, baby, baby bear voiced my way out of off stage so I could go fix this. But my phone answered itself and a dear friend of mine um, has a greeting for me that involves oh, a curse no. word that he says every time <laughs> we talk. And so over the speaker for 600 kindergartners, it was, hey, bleep, oh, no. um, <laughs> in the middle of the show. And I like, I just, I don't know. I, I hung up the phone. I freaked out backstage for a second. I came back on and I was like, that wasn't very nice. And like, we kept going. Like, what else do you right. do? Right. It's already happened. Yep. <laughs> you know, um, 
<laughs> so, so we finished and um, there was a, a school administrator who was there to like get us in and out or whatever. And uh, I was talking to what I thought was just my tour partners. And I said really loudly and very assertively, like if you didn't know me, you would think that I really, really meant it. And I said, it's days like this that made me wish I did cocaine, which like doesn't make sense even like as a thing. But it was just I was just like I needed to rage out. And I thought that if I were a cocaine user, I could rage out better because I was really upset that that had happened. <laughs> and then I feel a tap on my shoulder and it's the school administrator telling us thank you for oh, coming. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do like to leave things on a positive note. So, uh <laughs> You know, uh, we've talked about the pitfalls and things that have happened to you that were less than stellar. Uh, do you have any experiences that were just over the moon that you wish you could have bottled and <laughs> and kept? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Any anything you'd like to share uh, quickly? Certainly. Yeah. I when I did the Winter's Tale, which yes. you saw, uh, I a boy played my son who was at the time I think nine or ten and. We had a lot of, we, we bonded very closely oh, during that great. production. And he would tell me about like his friends at school who were being very nice to him. And he would get bullied for being kind of artsy. And I would tell him to tell them, you know, to bugger yeah. off or whatever. <laughs> and um, so our relationship became really close. And then he actually ended up majoring in theater when he got. Oh, college. that's great. But I was a professor by then. But yeah, he ended up uh, following that oh, same kind great. of route. And I like to imagine I had anything to do with it, <laughs> but um that's the beauty of working with people over a long period of time is you kind of get to see their growth. And to me, that's the most important thing uh, and the most exciting part of, of what I yeah. do. Yeah. Uh, you know, so with uh, just kind of wrapping things up here, we talked about Susan Oliver's life and we can see very clearly that it was a life she chose and it was a life she lived. Um, there were a lot of couldas and shouldas. Um, from a certain point of view, but I don't think anybody could argue that Susan Oliver lived her life. And, uh, part of the reason I had you on to discuss Susan Oliver's life is because you also have lived the life of a performer and have gone on to instruct and shape performers coming after you. Um, you know, and also because you offer that very valuable thing that I will never be able to offer my listeners, that female perspective. Uh, and, you know, because and we've <laughs> talked a lot about that uh, today with, um, you know, with your experiences and your uh, thought and and life experiences uh, to go along with it. Um, anything that you can add to this female perspective life, age experience, uh, professional experience, anything that you want to um, impart, uh, you know, having having witnessed a small sliver of Susan Oliver's life and career, any anything uh, wrapping up the uh, the documentary? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think one of the big things for me is the very important uh, adage that representation matters, right? And so I I thank you for not trying to do a podcast about women without women. Yeah. That would be awkward. Uh <laughs> the times that it has happened, I've been like, oh, this was dumb. <laughs> and I try to make a joke about can, it of just like, who yeah. better to discuss this than two dudes? But, uh, but yes. <laughs> but 
Yeah, but an, an awareness of it and and a and an aim to provide opportunity, you know, when where you have it and, and to the extent that you can, I think is super important. And I think that's what Susan was trying to do through uh, getting her foot into the directing door, but also just refusing to play the game and continuing to follow her passions in the way that suited her because it's her life and not, it was her life and it wasn't anybody else's yeah. to decide. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest ones, but I would also say that, you know, there, there's a, a message in the film about how much she deserved fame and how talented she was. And I wanted to just complicate that a little bit by asking whether fame is or should be the only determinant of success. Yeah. (laughs) Because I think you can impact a lot of folk and make a a lot of change and do a lot of good, whether people know you by your name or just your green face. Yeah. 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 You're absolutely right. Um, So uh, thank you for coming on and, you know, weighing in and all this stuff. Uh, But, you know, we would be remiss if I didn't address the other person involved in this documentary um someone behind the camera uh for for all of it and we do this every week uh good or bad there's always somebody so we have to ask the question who do we blame uh in this case besides susan oliver for for living an amazing life we can blame george pappy the director of this documentary now uh typically when i put together uh, a sort of list of credits i actually have to pare this down but George Pappy's uh, resume is pretty slim. Uh, he's an independent filmmaker who um, has only a few credits to his name. This is this is arguably his biggest thing with its widest reach. Um, but his first credit was uh, a, a film called A Line for Every Occasion. And I looked everywhere trying to find this online find information about it. I know it came out in 2004 and its budget was twelve and a half thousand dollars um but I also know that he wrote it, directed it and produced it himself, which to me that is across the board the stamp of independent film like you you got a little but you try to make something out of it. Uh, his next effort was a short in 2005 called Barney, which he also wrote, directed, and produced, and provided the voice of surfer number one. Uh, The star of Barney is Charlie Steffens. Uh, That that name will come back up in a few minutes. But then uh, his third effort was a film called Few Options All Bad in 2011, again, which he wrote, directed, and produced himself. I'm actually going to do a little bit of a movie trailer voice here. Here we go. A convicted felon leaves prison after 22 years. He wants a normal life. Now, supposedly a legitimate job has bigger plans for its newest employee. Kenny Johnson has few options. All bad. Probably not in a theater near you. That was great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's kind of a dude gets out of prison. He tries to go straight, but the, his life won't let him. The interesting thing is there's a lot of really good people in this. Kenny Johnson, uh, who had a, a small role in Blade, but he was in a big chunk of the FX show, The Shield. Um, 
Aaron Daniels, who's in One Hour Photo and House of a Thousand Corpses, plays uh, the female lead. Uh, David Marciano, who was in Lethal Weapon 2 and Due South, also in The Shield. He had a small role in Red State. Uh, and then Christian Stokes, who uh, did some a lot of stunt work, but he was in uh, Monster and Escape Plan and Doom Patrol. But we've got two pretty big names here. First off, Rain Wilson from The Office, Super, and Jerry and Marge Go Large, available now on Paramount+, Plus, who also did two episodes of Star Trek Discovery and one episode of Star Trek Short Treks, which he also directed uh, as Harry Mudd. And then uh, Brad Dourif, who was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, who was nominated for an Oscar. He was also in Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, and Return of the King. He also did three episodes of Star Trek Voyager as a crewman Lon Sutter. They're, all those folks are in this movie, but I've never heard of it. I You can find a trailer. You can find a couple of scenes on YouTube, but this, for some reason, just didn't see much light, uh, didn't get much press. It's largely forgotten. Like I said, I've never heard of it. Caroline, have you ever heard of this movie? No, I haven't. I have two thoughts on this. One is, yeah. you know how I was saying people, money, material? Yeah. Maybe this is a different combination of that where material may not have been the reason. Or maybe it was really great material and it just maybe. didn't pay enough to be able to get the publicity it deserved. Yeah. In looking at a lot of the credits of the bigger stars, and I mean, it's more than just these uh, these six people here, but um, I saw a lot of crossover, like Kenny Johnson was in The Shield and David Marciano was in The Shield. I got to assume at some point there was a phone call going, hey, mm -hmm. I'm on this project. Do you need something to do? <laughs> you want a little bit of cash? Um, you know, how they got Brad Dorif and Rain Wilson, you know, uh, and all these folks, honestly, they're all very accomplished. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious as to how it all went down. Um, but in 2020, uh, after the Green Girl documentary was made and released, uh, George earned his master's of science uh, degree in uh, data analytics, Georgia Institute of Technology, worked as a research data scientist uh, for the PA pediatric ICU at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles from 2020 uh, to 2021. And currently he's working as a data scientist for Nordstrom. In fact, if you go on LinkedIn, you can find him. <laughs> And I did, and I messaged him. So hopefully we get a word from him. I'd love to at least talk with him either on the phone or something and get uh, a few, uh, you know, a few thoughts from him about the Green Girl documentary. Because, you know, in listening to the commentary, clearly he's not a dummy. He, he knows his stuff. So I'd love mm. to pick his brain a little bit about this. So we come to the question that we ask every week, and this, this is going to be a little bit more unique just because it isn't necessarily part of the direct narrative of Star Trek. But the question is, is this essential viewing? So because it's not directly part of Star Trek, Caroline, do you think this is essential viewing in one aspect or another? I do. I really do. I, I enjoyed this a lot. And it was just so cool to get a piece of Hollywood, this thing that just seems ever present and just to, to not know any part of this and then to be introduced to her was a really cool opportunity. I would say if you are somebody who found uh, the green girl uh, alluring, uh, then gosh, that is only the surface of how wonderfully nuanced 
this performer, Susan Oliver, was. Yeah. So if you're at all intrigued by her, definitely worth your time. Or if if you want to learn more about what it meant to be an actor in the 20th century with the the pitfalls and triumphs that come with that, uh, definitely required viewing. Yeah, absolutely. Essential viewing. Yes, yes. And again, thank you so much for carving out the time to to come and sit with your old uncle and talk about this weird documentary that's got this lady who's painted green in it. And uh, <laughs> it's it been my, so much fun talking with you. <laughs> my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah. I will uh, keep you updated on my Star Trek journey now that I feel like I'm well on my way. <laughs> yes, please check in, check in with us often. Yes, absolutely. Any Any final thoughts? about uh the life of Susan Oliver uh your the trek you have not taken yet uh your experience on this podcast your career and uh life as a performance artist uh any any final thoughts before we wrap it up ah uh, this has been a blast um i i love fandoms I love all fandoms because it is so cool to create a culture around a shared obsession i think ah, yes. and uh <laughs> And Star Trek is that, right? For so many people. Very much. Uh, that one of my big takeaways is just uh, the joy of a fandom yet to be fully encountered uh, and all of the possibilities that come along with that. Awesome. Well, folks, with season five of Computer Resume, we are taking some big strides, which will hopefully be the first steps to bigger and better things for the show. Next week, we will be joined by ShuttlePod's on-camera producer, Erica LaRose, and off-camera producer, Mark Cartier, to discuss Short Treks Season 2, Episode 5, The Girl Who Made the Stars, and Star Trek Discovery Season 1, Episode 1, The Vulcan Hello, which are available exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Caroline, yes, what do you have going on that people can follow, support, and where can people bother you on the internet? Yeah, uh, I am directing two projects coming up in the Greenville, South Carolina area, both of which are new works by playwrights who will be in the room with me. I'm super excited. One is called Kill Core by Sofia Alvarez at the Warehouse Theater. Uh, information it can be found on warehousetheater.com. It opens on January 27th, 2023. It's a it's the story of a woman who uh, discovers that she is pregnant and then takes extreme measures to uh, preserve or let go of her corporate career. And the second is a play called Our Tempest by Jake Brash. That'll be at Furman University from April 11th through the 16th. It's the story of performative climate activism and a bunch of theater students learning that they need each other after all. Um, if you want to follow me, I do a lot of, uh, I'm a critic, not the bad kind, but the fun kind. And uh, I do a lot of reviews of new scripts. And so you can follow me on Instagram at, at Davis Caroline Jane if you want that info. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials. From all of us at the Computer Resume Podcast, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you in 10 forward.
us on Patreon and like, rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. Feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at computerresume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume Podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop, and our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn, and the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods, and we're gonna find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?